Well, good morning, everybody. Morning. Wearing my Jets colors today. Yeah, go Jets, go. Yeah, it's all good. I hope we're all good. If you're our guests here today, welcome. And uh, just sit back, make yourself comfortable, and take it all in. And before we go any further, let me pray. God, very simply, may the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, the actions of our lives, may they be acceptable in your sight, and may everything thought and spoken and felt be blessed by you today. So, over the next little while, we're going to take some time to look uh, for God, truth, grace, and meaning in contemporary film. So just let me say, just because uh, I use a movie doesn't mean that I necessarily think that the film is great. Um, I don't necessarily recommend that you go out and imitate the language or lifestyle in all the films that we use, but rather that you would use wisdom, discernment, discretion. And at the same time, there's a lot of interesting truth that comes off the big screen. So for over the next little while, we're going to be jumping between Matthew and God in the movies or God on the big screen, however you want to call it. And so why do we do this? And I think it's been about four or five years. Actually, I went into the resources I couldn't find when I actually did one of these for for quite a while. So let me reiterate some things that are very important, at least for me. Um, The late Marshall McLuhan, Canadian, is considered to be one of the chief theorists of mass communications in our time. And what he did is he ended up probing and he predicted different trends and his ideas stimulated thousands of artists. Uh, intellectuals, they stimulated journalists, and throughout the world, it con- people continued to investigate the claims that he made. He saw the powerful impact of technological change on the world, and he showed us a new way to explain our world and so- society. Now, McLuhan is interesting because he contended that all media in and of themselves, and regardless of the messages they communicate, exert a compelling influence on people and society. And of course we see that, we see that with today's celebrities. They serve as, whether you like it or not, our cultural prophets, our religious philosophers uh, of our day. And more often than not, some famous actor or actress will carry as much weight with the religious influence on the average person. Can you say Oprah? Can you say Kardashian? Like, you know what I'm saying? Can you say Madonna? And of course my lookalike, Ricky Martin. Um, it's just there. Now, it's interesting because celebrities find that since the media scrutinizes their lives and their practices, their words now are magnified all the more to the general population. So whether you like it or not, what, uh, what you are sitting in this morning and viewing is actually the greatest pulpit in North America. People go to the movies to get their story. And there are preachers called producers who are communicating their own personal worldview. They're communicating their philosophical system. They're communicating their morals. They're communicating their values. And I know that some folks have some theological problems with movies in general, even sitting here today. But there are those who go to movies, listen, who get their theology. Right? So like it or not, it's true, and that's the world we find ourselves. So so many, uh, many people who will never darken the door of a church will watch endless movies with huge theological implications staring them in the face. So what do God and, the mo- and movies have in common? That becomes a big question, and I would venture that Romans 1.20 says that there's a lot in common, that everything in creation will teach you about God. And if, if you're willing to pay attention, if you're willing to do the time, every story that has been told has a thread of God's story running through it or counter to it. Are you with me? So if we open our eyes, are we going to see God's story? Now, somebody's going to be sitting there going, Pastor, how can you use movies in church? I don't know. How do you use flannel graph in church when you're growing up? With literally in the... You know, especially to illustrate little sermons, you had Jesus that's stuck on the wall. You know, hey, look at this. Um, Today we use film, right? We use film. And any generation in any culture can teach by telling a story. And so for our uh, post-literate culture, if I could put it that way, movies are probably one of the most helpful resources in telling a story. Same with music. 
So Christians can no longer afford to treat culture like this threatening influence. Oh, we got a barricade, let's set up uh, the wagons and hide. No, instead we need to recognize that we are permanently woven into the fabric of the social fabric of our society. Into the, and it's actually coming into the very system of our families, our churches, and our schools. Fight as you want. We live in this culture. Like if you don't want culture to really influence, then go buy a piece of land out in the tundra and still even then good luck. So when we look at culture... There is language and scenes, and, and, and I, again, that we're not necessarily encouraged to uh, imitate. However, when we look at culture, we also need to be mature and deal with it in a very mature way. And if that means talking about it, then by all means, I think the church needs to be a place where we can at least open up the doors and engage the discussion. Are you with me on that? So as we do these God in the movie things, I will guarantee you discussion will take place. Now, my life group had the benefit of watching this entire movie, and I had to restrain restrain myself from trying to preach my sermon earlier last night. But it creates discussion. And as believers in the world, we're to stand up for things that are true. We're to stand up for things that are lovely, for honorable, that that are right. And however, there are some things that are true, but are sometimes ugly. And we need to stand up and we need to address those things as well. In Acts chapter 17, Paul engages the Athenians, the pagans there at the time. Here he is, he's a cross-cultural missionary and he's on this, he's on this trip and, and he's looking at the cultural landscape. And, and I, in my opinion, it's much like our landscape today. Things haven't changed all that much. And what Paul does is when he first goes in, he realizes that these people are off the charts spiritually. That that. They're nowhere close when it comes to truth and, and the meaning of life. But before preaching what Paul does, interesting enough, he says he, is he listens and he watches and he observes and he takes it all in. And what he listens to in Acts 17 is he listens to the philosophers. He listens to the cultural expressions that are expressed by their poets and, uh, and what's expressed in the visuals. And at that time, it was the idols that littered the landscape. And he reads their inscriptions and he puts it all together. And so when talk, Paul talks about using a philosopher to spark conversation and to hear the interpretations of what they have, he's using their philosophers. He's quoting their uh, um, uh, poets. And in turn, we use the philosophers of the day to spark conversations and hear the interpretations. Are you with me? Now... Today in this romantic drama based on the bestseller by a female author that has been devoured by hordes of female readers, a filthy, rich, 30-ish man who has shut down his emotions and uh, forms a relationship with a fetchingly unsophisticated younger woman of modest means who is willing basically to tend to his needs. And so what starts off as strictly a business proposition eventually grows into a more personal and cozier connection. Quick, can you name the movie? You know, you and your dirty mind are probably thinking, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey, right? Well, no, think again. Replace the explicit kink with a lovey-dovey can noodling and all that bondage gear with a wheelchair is where we're going today. And what you have is this movie called Me Before You. It's not an exercise in S&M marathons, but it's also completely chaste, and it's a what you can wallow in sob cinema, as some people or call it, or one reviewer called it weep porn. <laughs> I so wanted to say that last night to my life group, but I had to withhold myself. Uh, there are many themes discussed in this film, but I will keep mine limited for sake of time today. So me before you, if you, in case you didn't know, this is actually based on a best-selling novel by Jojo Moyes that tells the story of the sweet-tempered, naive Louisa Clark, sometimes just referred to as Clark in the movie. She's happy. She's really unambitious. She, uh, it turns out to be a problem for her when her family actually needs more income. And so now she's very desperate for work, and she becomes this full-time caretaker and companion for the disabled Will Trainer, a wealthy but embittered young man. Now, though Will cynically despi- uh, despises Louisa's efforts at her kindness, uh, she determines to reach him. She's bent to do this. And she soon discovers that Will wants to have physician-assisted suicide. 
and that her employment is actually a last-ditch effort by Will's parents to help change his mind. And so she decides that she needs to empower Will to experience the beauty and the goodness of life, and that's the mission of the movie. And soon the two are off on a series of adventures during uh, which the laws of cinema demand that Louisa and Will fall in love. Now, before you say, ah... I need to say that this movie is riddled clearly with themes that I believe many fail to see because of the emotion that is wrapped up in the movie. And in my opinion, and I say this very clearly, where I believe that this movie goes profoundly wrong is in the one thing that it desperately wants to get right. It's a romantic comedy. It's, It's lacquered in layers of sinister irony, and it's a love story that ends up celebrating autonomy instead of love, and it celebrates despair instead of hope, and it promotes assisted suicide as an act of love. Now, for some of you, you're jumping out of your seats. Now, I can usually pull out some good stuff, but I need to say that this movie is incorrect in its depiction of people living with disabilities. It's also confused in its definitions of love and life and death and sacrifice, and it's diametrically opposed to the premise of a sovereign God who created people in his image and therefore is the only one appointed to make decisions of life and death. Now, these facts and and the implication actually led some people in real life to Uh, Actually, a lot of Christians boycotted this movie. Uh, People living with disabilities actually tended to protest and uh, write scathing articles and scathing reviews regarding this film. And so Rotten Tomatoes, uh, you know, if you've seen the movie and you cried, oh, wonderful for you. But Rotten Tomatoes, I think, put it like at a 58%. And uh, it just sort of sunk, um, even though it was a bestseller. But why does all this matter? I think that's the question that we have to ask. And because I said earlier is that the screen is the prophet in our culture. You know, I talked to somebody earlier today. said, oh, it's great because I just saw this movie on the plane down to the States. Okay, so it's everywhere. Maybe you had a hard time finding it, but it is everywhere. And we're being bombarded with these messages that are at times contrary to Scripture. But they're packaged in a very acceptable way. And the novel's author is interesting because she acknowledges that she's motivated at least in part by her sympathy for patients who desire assisted suicide. That's where our culture is right now. That's where, that's where our medical community is talking. And, and, and uh, she goes on to say this. She says, there are no right answers, interesting enough. It's completely an individual thing. And she adds, I hope what the story does, whether it's the book or film, is make people think twice before judging other people's choices. Ah, that sounds Canadian, right? And so this film clearly shapes the audience's conscience. And so Will's decision of assisted suicide is portrayed as inevitable and even brave. This is set in contrast to the beginning of film when we see... Will's life before his accident. So let me go back to the movie. As I watched it, I had to laugh at this scene that you're about to watch because I believe it's reflective of our society in a time where people on average go through 12 different career changes in a lifetime. So just watch this clip. Please, sit down. Okay. Do you have any experience of caregiving? Um, I've never done it, but I'm sure I could learn. Do you have any experience of quadriplegia? Uh, no. We are talking about complete loss of the legs and very limited use of the arms and the hands. Would that bother you? Not as much as would bother him, obviously. Sorry. Sorry, no, I didn't. No, uh, no, I... Are you all right? Um, I'm, I'm just a little hot. Do you mind, do you mind if I take off my jacket? Your previous employer here says you are a warm, chatty, and life-enhancing presence with a lot of potential. Yes, I paid him. (laughs) (laughs) So what exactly do you want to do with your life? Sorry. 
Do you have aspirations for a career or a professional dream that you wish to pursue? Um, well... Miss Clark, why should I employ you instead of, say, the previous candidate? Um... Really, you can't think of a single reason why I should employ you. Well, no, yes, Mrs. Trainer, I'm, um, I'm, I'm, I'm a fast learner, and I'm never ill, and I only live on the on the other side of the castle, and I'm stronger than I look, and I just I make a mean cup of tea. You know, there really isn't much that can't be solved by a decent cup of tea. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not that I'm saying that your husband's paraplegic, quad, quad, quadriplegic, could be solved by. It's my son. Your son. Will was injured in a road accident two years ago. Oh, I'm sorry. When I'm nervous, I just say stupid stuff. I'm just popping up. Ah, another interviewee. Will you be back this evening? I'll do my best. Why, do you need me for something? No, darling, fine. Hello, I'm Stephen, Will's father. Uh, Louisa Clark. Nice to meet you. Lovely, lovely to meet you. See you later, darling. Mm -hmm. So. <laughs> Would you like the job? Yes. Can you start immediately? Yes. Good. Then let's go and meet Will. Right, yeah, quick, um, so what do you want to do with your life? That's what, that's what caught me in this, this, this clip here. And here she is, she's in her mid-twenties. She still doesn't have a clue, and I find it actually very reflective of our culture. We're a generation without purpose. We're desperate look, looking for purpose, and what we do in our culture is we move from one thing to another. Like I said, the average uh, transition of jobs is anywhere between 12 and actually 15 in our culture. The fact is everybody has a different purpose. For some, our purpose is maybe our family. For others, maybe your purpose is finding a spouse or maybe it's earn, you know, looking to earn money and making money. For others, it's God. If, if there's no one purpose to live by, then it fails, falls up to each one of us really to make up our own purpose. So what is your purpose? For some, purpose is defined by success and by money and by pleasure. And, and for some, we waste our entire life when you think about it, not knowing why or what we are created for. Because let's be honest, money loses its luster and careers fade and people come and go in our lives, do they not? So what's our purpose? What do you want to do with your life? What's your purpose for living? Have you asked yourself that question? Well, you did now, obviously. And we go to the Old Testament. Solomon asked that question. He, he basically said in Ecclesiastes 7, he said, how can anyone basically discover what life means? And he begins to write, and he writes, and when we read throughout Ecclesiastes, we see that he discovered that, that when we have no purpose or the wrong purpose, that life seems useless. That life seems tiresome. Next slide, please. That uh, life seems unfulfilling. That life seems un insignificant. That life seems uncontrollable. And you read Ecclesiastes, and it actually can be quite depressing. But the good news is that you don't have to make up your purpose. God has already created you with a purpose. God wants you to know your purpose, but you can only find your purpose in knowing your creator, in knowing Jesus Christ, that you are made by, and, by God and for God. John said, uh, Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, I have come that they may have life, that they may have it more abundantly. That's all about purpose. That's not about happiness. And the two most important days in our lives are the day that we're born and the day that you discovered the purpose for your life. And there are five essential, uh, essentials of life when it comes to finding our own purpose. And, and, and the first is to find power to live on. So when you think about it, the, the, the two most important, uh, we need this power source, sorry. We need a power source to live on. The stress, right? Conflict. Uh, uh, everyday living, what does that do to us? It really sucks the life right out of us, does it not? 
You know, where, where do you get your energy to keep going when you feel like giving up? How many times do you and I feel like giving up regardless of what we're doing? But the secret for power to live on is to focus on God, to focus on Christ. And the more that we focus on Jesus, the more power you're going to have for life. It's called the Holy Spirit, that he fills us and he works through us. And God is the source of all that power. And in order to get it from God, we need to focus on him. The biblical word to describe that is actually worship. We make him number one. And because we all determine to worship someone or something in our lives, we do. What is your focus? What do you draw your strength from? What is your all-consuming thought? God created us with the desire that and the need that in our life uh, that he can fulfill that. But sometimes we put other things in there and we, we head off in different directions. When you look at the movie, Will was worshiping living life to the fullest before his accident. Louisa's focus he became eventually Will. And that actually becomes her point of worship. You know, we worship things that cannot bring power into our lives. The Bible calls that idolatry, but... The only person or thing worthy of our worship that can bring power into our lives and, and give us our focus is God. So where do you stand with that? See, God has the power you need, but you have to focus on him to get it. And that's where true worship is, focusing on God. It's, it's how we are to live our lives, and it's more than just a Sunday morning experience, people. Psalm 62.1 says, I waited quietly before my God for my victory comes in from him. And so if we worship God in this process of surrender and making him number one in our lives, we receive his victory. He becomes our focus. And when we do that, we receive his power and we're restored and we're refreshed to go out and do what he has called us to do. Secondly, we also need to find principles to live by. You know, you, you find the power to live on, the power source, but we need to have principles for us to live by. You, we need a strong moral foundation and a strong conviction that gives you stability, especially when life is confusing, do we not? How many of you watched the uh, Humble broadcast last week and you saw the, the memorial service on TV? Okay, you need to go back and watch that. If you haven't seen it, you need to go back and watch that. Because I love what the pastor said. He asked the question, he said, where is God? He said a couple of times, I got nothing. And this is the pastor, this is Jesus' rep. But when it came down to it, he had faith. He had a moral foundation. He had a faith-based worldview. And he says, I don't have the answers, but I know this, that God is on the throne. He had a foundation. Psalms 119, verse 19 says, I'm a pilgrim here on earth and I need a map and your commands are my chart and my guide. In other words, everything you and I need, the principles that we need to build our life on and to live by are right in front of us in scripture. God's principles for living, for, for money, for relationships, for sex, and the list goes on, are the opposite of what culture says to us. And you and I need to settle in our minds what the guiding principles are that we're going to live by. What is your foundation? And I hope that during our series, you will learn the principles you need to, to navigate this road that we call life, and it'll be able to guide you and uh, to give you joy and purpose for your life. So let me switch. Now it appears that Louisa has no real purpose in life. Really, her purpose is to help mom and dad pay the bills, and no sooner is she hired, she's introduced to Will in the initial introduction, which you have missed, because it didn't go well. I didn't want to show that. But also, it shows us um, Will's true character. And here basically comes their second meeting in this clip, and you'll, you'll see what she's up against. Watch this. Hello. Hello. So I thought we could go out this afternoon. Where'd you have mind? Well, I was told that you had a car that was adapted for wheelchair use. I do thought a drive would be good for me. A breath of fresh air. 
What do you usually do? I don't do anything, Miss Clark. I sit. I just about exist. Okay. Well, I could get you your computer. Have you found a good quad support group I could join? Quads are us. The Tin Wheels Club. Well, perhaps we could get to know each other a bit. You know, because then you could tell me what you do like to do. Me. <clears throat> Maybe. Here's what I know about you, Miss Clark. My mother says you're chatty. Yeah. Can we strike a deal whereby you are very unchatty around me? Okay. Yeah, well, I'll just be in the kitchen if you need anything. Lovely. So both are trying to find purpose in their lives, but they're going in different directions. Now in the movie, Will Trainer was once this dashing financial whiz. He's a devotee of extreme sports, lover of ravishing women, and then uh, this is all before he was left as a quadriplegic two years earlier in a car accident, as you heard. Initially, he's very toxic. He's filled with resentfulness and bitterness over losing his once wonderful life. He finds very little joy in exist <clears throat> existing anymore. Louisa, she's this caretaker intended to be, hired to be this ray of sunshine to dispel the storm clouds that lend to Will's sagging spirits. She's hired to boost his desire to live. And uh, with a considerable arsenal of withering sarcastic retorts at his surly disposal this guy will puts up this defense and he treats her so bad at first that she was just about to pack it in after her first 10 days or so after spending time with him but she doesn't quit and as if you might have uh, expected uh her unsinkable upbeat attitude eventually begins to rub off on will and one rainy day, Will decides to watch a DVD, and the ice between uh, him and Louisa begins to melt, and so do our hearts. <laughs> and as they grow closer together, he starts smiling and even laughing, and even agrees to go out on the day trips that Louisa plans. And Will begins to grow on Louisa and vice versa, repeatedly telling her, now it's interesting, telling her she deserves a chance to grow and to explore and to spread your wings. And he takes steps, he takes the steps to care for her financially and he kindly secures a job for her father. Watch this clip very carefully that I call irony. Trina made a bet that I couldn't get a job in 24 hours. I proved her wrong. And stayed there six years. Way to go. I was supposed to leave. I uh, had a place at Manchester. What were you going to study? Fashion. Uh, so why didn't you go? You know what I see when I look at you? Don't say potential. Potential. You need to widen your horizons, Clark. You only get one life actually your duty to live it as fully as possible. You know, I find it odd that this movie purports to be about embracing life and living as fully as possible. As a matter of fact, if you were to go onto Twitter and you find the film's tagline, the tagline is live boldly. And it's actually a very strange message for a story that celebrates the refusal to accept any life other than the one in which you exercise maximum choice and control. You know, Will himself, you heard him say, you only get one life. It's actually your duty to live it as fully as possible. 
Unless, of course, that is you're a quadriplegic, convinced that your primary role in your loved one's lives is that you're a burdensome limitation and that the only choice you have is, despite the many resources, incredible resources, at your disposal is suicide. In that case, me before you implies it's actually your duty to go off and kill yourself. You can say amen or ouch at that point in time. But we miss it because we're all involved in the ah moment of a romantic comedy or weep porn. So obviously in the film, Louisa finds out that Will's planning his suicide and so she now doubles her efforts to get through to him, suddenly realizing that it's a life and death matter on the literal focus and for a time, it looks as if she's going to convince Will to change his mind. And, and furthermore, to everybody's surprise, Louisa and Will, what do they happen? They, they fall in love. And now certain that Will will change his mind now that he understands that he can still have new adventures and a loving relationship. Which brings me to the third essential and finding purpose in our life. Really, you know, we, we find power to live on, we find principles to live by, but we all need to find people to live with. And I'm not talking roommates. I'm talking people to live with, to do life with. The Bible has a unique term. It calls it fellowship. And we need each other. Everybody needs somebody. Do we not? Thank you. At least three people are friends. Awesome. Everybody else is recluse. Welcome to Saul. You know, we need God, but we need each other. This is how we're created. God said it's not good for man to be alone. We need each other. We're made for relationships. We're created this way, and we need godly relationships in our lives. And so this is why we here at Seoul say, listen, you need to join a life group. You need to volunteer in some areas of service here at Seoul. You should go take the growth tracks, if you haven't already, and find out what type of community we are and see where you can fit in. And you, you need to sign up, ladies, for that woman's uh, getaway that's coming and you can go online it's all there right now guys we did this event called the man cave and these are all about relationships really how do we break down those relationships because let's be honest even though I may say hey go and meet somebody new it's very hard for you to do it we're terrified of, a, of new people they look different they smell different I smell great personally but they smell different right and, and all you know I, I'm out of my comfort zone come on this is our home And we need to be reaching out. It's all about relationships. And as we grow closer to each other, we grow closer to Jesus and vice versa. But if we isolate ourselves from other people, did you know that you're three times more likely to die an early death? You're four times more likely to suffer from emotional burnout. Isn't that interesting? You're five times more likely to be clinical depressed and you're 10 times more likely to be hospitalized for emotional or mental disorders. What does that say? It says that we're wired for each other. We need people. Now, not everybody's going to be your friend, but at least be friendly and discern who you're going to let in and who you're going to share your stuff with because we are made for relationships. Again, we go back to Solomon and Ecclesiastes. Two people are better off than one for they can help each other succeed. And if one falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Real trouble. We need each other. Well, the climax of the movie occurs on a beach. Uh, let's just say, watch this. I have to tell you something. I know. You know about Switzerland. I have known for months. Listen, I know this is not how you would have chosen it. But I can make you happy. I get that this could be a good life, but it's not my life. It's not even close. You never saw me before. I loved my life. I really loved it. I can't be the kind of man who just accepts this. You're not giving it a chance. You're not giving me a chance. I have become a whole new person these last six months because of you. I know, and that's why I can't have you tied to me. 
I don't want you to miss all the things that someone else could give you. And selfishly, I don't want you to look at me one day and feel even the tiniest bit of regret or pity. I would never think that. You don't know that. I can't watch you wandering around the annex in your crazy dresses. We'll see you naked and not not be able to do. Oh, God, Clark, if you had any idea what I want to do to you right now. <laughs> I can't live like this. Please, Will, please. <laughs> Shh, listen. This, tonight, being with you is the most wonderful thing you could have ever done for me. But I need it to end here. No more pain and exhaustion and waking up every morning already wishing it was over. It's not going to get better than this. The doctors know it, and I know it. When we get back, I'm going to Switzerland. So I'm asking you if you feel the things you say you feel. Come with me. I thought that I was changing your mind. Nothing was ever going to change my mind. I promised my parents six months, and that's what I've given them. say another word. You were so selfish. I tore my heart out in front of you and all you can say is no. And now you want me to come and watch the worst thing you could possibly imagine. Do you have any idea what you're asking? I wish I had never taken this stupid job. I wish I had never met you. Louisa. Louisa! In my opinion, this movie tells the audience that people with disabilities live difficult lives that aren't worth living and that they're a burden to their loved ones. His planned suicide is portrayed as a selfless act of love. He has said to her, you know, I don't want you to be tied to me, to my hospital appointments, to the restrictions on my life. I don't want you to miss out on the things that somebody else could give you. And so moreover, it tells people that the only life that is valuable is the one that is governed by people's personal preferences and choices. And should, you know, things go the other way, well, then suicide now becomes rational and even an acceptable response. I need to say this, is that life cannot be measured by the function of our bodies, people. You know, whether we can run, whether we can swim, whether we can make love, or even if we can even feed ourselves. Human dignity, if I can say that, is grounded in the creator whose image we bear and whose image cannot be destroyed by even the worst physical trauma. In other words, reducing life to biological functions is not only foolish, it is anti-God. It's atheistic. It, it denies the transcendent nature of God. Our lives don't mean something because we have a fully intact spinal cord or the normal number of chromosomes. They have meaning because God says so. A meaning that is clarified in the gospel where God's people are promised that there is something better than an independent body. There is a glorified body that we will one, one day all have. And as Christians, I think we have to share this truth repeatedly, whether we're talking to those like Will living with disabilities or to couples considering aborting their Down syndrome child or to a terminally depressed patient who is weighing heavily with assisted suicide. See, again, it, it infers that people living with disabilities live hard lives that aren't worth living, that they're burdens. 
And I think that this movie actually bluntly voices the common cultural assumption that people with disabilities are burdens, particularly on their loved ones, which actually now then makes suicide a selfless act. And I think one of the strangest aspects of this story is how Will's attitude further stigmatizes uh, people living with disabilities. Will, as you watch the movie, is convinced that he isn't like other quadriplegics, especially those who are living satisfied lives with their condition. You know, he said, I, I, I led a big life. I'm not designed to exist in this thing regarding his wheelchair. He says, this is not the life that I choose. Isn't that interesting? And you hear these remarks expressed by Will and these ideas, and you know, we consider it absurd and, and offensive if we apply it to anybody other than people with disabilities. You know, it's almost like this idea that some people are designed to live limited, quiet lives without adventure or excitement, that the only valuable life is one governed by our preferences and choices. And that we realize our life has turned out very different than how we thought it would be. Then, you know, well, if that's the case, well, then suicide is a, a rational response. When somebody justifies leaving behind a spouse and their kids by saying, well, this is not what I thought my marriage would be like, we usually just say, well, join the club. And, yet, and usually we condemn that kind of response as, as being very selfish. But when Will says it the same way, we're meant, the, the purpose behind that by the director or the author is that we're meant to see it as some wise self-knowledge. And in addition, when Will, whose family has the resources to provide 24-hour caregivers and luxury accommodations to meet his needs, and he insists that he's not like those people who have chosen to live with their disability, he further marginalizes an already marginalized population. Yeah, so I'm passionate about this. And the other thing that sort of drives me nuts about this movie is that it projects life as subject to dualism that separates our body from the mind, spirit, and soul so that the real person exists separately from his or her body. So when Louisa, after hearing Will's stories about the pre-accident to Paris in the, earlier in the movie, suggests that maybe I can get you back to Paris, he says, I, don't want, to go to, I, don't, I want to go to Paris as me, the real me. In other words, he's saying, I want to, if I go back to Paris, I want to go back uninjured. The real me, he says. And without question, physical disabilities bring difficulty and grief with them. We know that. But difficulty and grief aren't the whole story. People living with disabilities, including those who have uh, maybe acquired their uh, issue uh, later in life can and do learn to revise their sense of self and they can and do try new things and they can and fall in love and they can and live and build healthy, happy, satisfying lives. Our internal selves, interior selves, our mind, our, our souls, our spirits do not exist separately from our bodies, people but in constant communication and in constant relationship with them. Our bodies, be it disabled or abled, have helped sh to shape everything about who we are, both the good and the bad. Healthy or not, strong and fragile, wise and foolish, fearless and afraid, grateful and bitter, joyful and sad. Christianity is so compelling to me because contrary to a common misconception that faith is about developing this ethereal spirituality that ignores the demands of the body, our faith is grounded in the material. When you see scripture, God, the creator of soil and sky and water, of bodies with fur and scales and feathers and skin, God incarnate coming to earth in human form was a man who hungered. Jesus hungered and thirst. He sweat. He shivered. Whose skin was sickled with the blood at birth and at his death and even suffocated on a cross. And to... 
believe that the real me exists apart from my body, that the only realities that matter exist outside of and beyond the physical is to deny the very nature of humanity and the world and for believers is to deny the nature of God. There's a whole lot of theology in this movie. And it's not good. (laughs) You know, and it's true that people living with disabilities will have hard days unfair choices to make and pain and hassles in their life that those of us able-bodied people maybe don't have. I recognize that. But none of that makes suicide a rational, admirable decision as being portrayed in this film. You know why? Because our culture idolizes the perfect body. And not just in the sense that we're all pressured to look tanned and toned and you know, physically fit like your pastor. You need a drink to that, yeah. <laughs> Give me some ketones now. <laughs> you know, well, you, we, we can't get away from our photoshopped celebrities whose images are everywhere. We make physical health along with physical attractiveness our idol. And I'm not saying it's wrong to be working out and to get into shape and to do what we need to do, to eat this way or exercise that way. You know, but the, the communication we get is if we do this, you'll be guaranteed health. Isn't that interesting? In a culture, we live in a culture that idolizes physical strength, that idolizes independence, health, and narrow ideals of beauty, right? It's in the eye of the beholder. No, we're culture determines what beauty is, and, and there's prejudice against those who are disabled or unhealthy or physically weak or who fail to meet our narrow definitions of beauty, and then it becomes justifiable in our culture. And we come to believe an impaired, dependent body is the worst possible fate. Which then makes suicide a reasonable choice. Remember when Robin Williams committed suicide, the media was already reporting that he was diagnosed with Parkinson's. And then later out it came to everybody's knowledge that it's called Lewy body dementia. And then it was almost as if in the media, people were saying, okay, well, now it makes sense. Now, now we understand. Listen, no, it doesn't. Illness and disability don't make suicide a rational and good decision. But the real worldview rendering thing here, and it comes out loud and clear, it's called Will's choice, Right? A word we hear so often these days in, in contemporary subjects and, and from our parliament regarding abortion and sexuality and gender. And it's presented not as selfish and cowardly, but it's presented to us as something that is sacrificial and brave and even noble. And we're supposed to applaud his willingness to spare the woman he loves the agony of caring for him. After all, it's his body, it's his life. He can do with it whatever he pleases, right? And I think that that's the prevailing philosophical ethos of our day. And, and it's reflected in the choice that Will can't be dissuaded from making here. 1 Corinthians roundly counters that ideology teaching us that our bodies are not our own. That our bodies belong to God. That every life, even the one that our society might deem somehow less than the best, has immense, immense dignity because of his breath of life that sustains it. And when we presume to decide who lives and dies, even when it comes to ourselves, we're playing God and violently demeaning the life that he gives us. The fourth essential for when it comes to finding our purpose is to find power to live on. We need the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We need to find principles to live by. We need to ground that on Uh, scripture. We need to find people to live with and more than just roommates. We need the community and we need to find a plan to live out. 
We need a plan because you can either live it by design or you're going to live it by default, right? You can live your life intentionally or you can live your life accidentally. And a lot of us, we live our life accidentally. Every morning we wake up not knowing maybe where we're going, what our purpose is, what kind of person we're becoming. But God has something better for you. Isn't that affirming? You are created by God. You were created for God. And God plans uh, as plans for your life. And his plan for your life, when you look at scripture, it's called service. To serve him and to serve others. Ephesians 2.10, you are God's masterpiece. He's created us uh, with a new, a new in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things that he's planned for us a long time ago. And so that masterpiece, that you are his masterpiece, you know, I make jokes that you're a piece of work, but it implies that you're not an accident. You're not an accident. Look at your neighbor. Tell them you're not an accident. Regardless of what I think, you're not an accident. Because you're not. Gosh, it doesn't matter what baggage you're in. It doesn't matter the, the, whether you're the most physically fit, 0% fat on your body, or you're on the other end of the spectrum. You're not an accident. You're a masterpiece. That's the message of the gospel. You are his masterpiece. You know, and you're created to do good things, to do works. That's your purpose. So God has made you. He has given you a purpose. And so do you get up in the morning, you look in the mirror and you're not happy with yourself and you compare yourself to others? Well, I'll just say this. That's an insult to God. It really is. He created you. You are his masterpiece. He didn't put you on this planet to be a selfish jerk. He wants you to give back to this world. That's where our culture, again, is failing. We absorb. We consume. It's all about me. We're so selfish. No, it's about serving. It's about giving back. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 5. There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same spirit is the source of them all. There's different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. You need to discern discover and develop your gifts. How? By when we serve. And when we serve, that's when we become alive. That's the awesome aspect. And finally, find passion to live for people. What's your passion? We want our lives to count for something. Many people just live and die existing. God created us for purpose, meaning, mission. And Paul understood this when he wrote to us, my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus Christ. The work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. Well, where does he say that? Acts 20, 24. His mission was telling others the good news. And that is God's plan for us to tell others the good news. And here at Seoul, we want to do everything we can to help you discover and to live out your purpose in life. And so as your pastor, you know, where does this all begin? Let me be really honest. If I haven't already been this morning, you're never going to connect with God and his plan and his purpose in your life until you first get connected with him. By believing that Jesus died on the cross for our forgiveness of sins is the very first step that you believe. The second step is a step that every Christian should take, and it's obedience. That we need to be obedient to the teachings. And for me, I'll be really honest, one of the biggest steps is baptism, water baptism. Baptism doesn't save you, but it's actually the first step in being obedient to surrendering to Jesus. And this is interesting, because now I'm speaking my humble opinion here. When people refuse to get water baptized, you're saying a heck of a lot. There are a lot of Christians who are missing out on their purpose of life because that there's this first thing that God really tells us to do after becoming a, a believer or a follower of Jesus that they haven't done. And for some people, they live for years. And in some cases, they outright refuse. And I'll simply say this, if, if you've put it off, maybe that's your source of separation between you and God. And it could be the source as to why you... Uh, are not getting plugged in with God's plan. Why? Because you're just not being obedient in the most easiest of ways. 
And the fact of the matter is, I, I don't care if you're a physical trainer, I don't care if you sit at a desk all day, our life mission for all of us is to tell others about Jesus, to help them to experience the same hope and the same purpose that we have. And what does that look like? Well, there's a lot of different ways that you can share your faith and help others get connected to God, but one simple way is to invite others to come to church with you. Nine easy words, right? We try to create a safe environment here. Look at, we're a church. Yes, some people think that they're going to drop dead walking through the doors. I get it. But we try to create this environment that is truly non-threatening. Why? Because we have other people in mind. The negativity that comes back to me is, well, you know, you play secular music. So what? It's not for you. Go to some other church. I don't really care. Give me your parking spot. Go somewhere else. Honestly, that's exactly how I feel. Maybe a little bit too much honesty this morning, but there it is. It's not for you. And maybe you're somebody's guest today. I am so thrilled that you're here. I hope that you come for the next few weeks. I hope that what I say to you, yeah, it's going to challenge you. Why? Because yes, we're a church. Yes, we're openly spiritual, but we're unapologetically Christian. We have the safe environment for you to bring friends and family members to. I can't say it harder. Don't come alone next week. Invite somebody to come with you. Because you never know. You never know what they will encounter. You never know if people are encountering God right now or discover God's purposes for their life. And so here's the foundational step. You, you will not find God's purpose and success or even another person. The secret is getting to know who God is. And if you haven't done that, then I need to say this. You need to say yes to Jesus right now. You, you, I want you to find God's purpose for your life. And if you haven't done that, and if you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ, listen to what Peter writes. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And so I conclude with these thoughts. What, uh, what every person, whether you're able-bodied or differently able, needs is a deep understanding of what it means to be made in the image of God. And we find that the image of God within each person is what gives life its value. We find that Jesus' sacrifice is the fullness of true love and that his redemption of us is the only thing that sets us free to love unconditionally. And we find that we don't need to operate from a place of judgment or a place of removal to a sovereign God. He offers us wisdom and love and he sends us into this world around us as ministers of reconciliation and of healing. That's who you are. You are a royal priesthood. You have a plan. You have a mission. And there's a world dying to hear it. Dying to experience it literally I do have to say this you've heard my opinion I've tempered it down I've tempered the theology behind everything down today but as believers we need to learn about physician assisted suicide and not just learn their side we need to do the theological and cultural study required to speak listen carefully hope in a hopeless places we need <clears throat> we read in scripture that we're not of the world and that we're to keep ourselves unstained by it and that we are to dwell on whatever is pure and lovely admirable and praiseworthy and we're instructed to not become over by evil but to overcome evil with good and these verses and many others often employed when Christians seek to encourage uh, another one away from the grislier parts of the world away from the agendas and messages that stand in opposition to scripture we have a message to bring and may I remind that all of us that that as we look into the person of Jesus and we see him touching in in, in Matthew he touched the shamed he touched the scorned looking with love into the eyes of those people who are marginalized in society 
And perhaps his example, perhaps the, the truth that the Spirit speaks to our hearts, the light by which he illuminates our eyes is pure and lovely, admirable and praiseworthy that we are to dwell on as we move towards the hopelessness that's in our culture today. The pain that we see when we drive along the roads or watch on TV, but turn off or look away. He's calling us to reach the world around us. And I don't have to remind you that a suffering world still cries out for comfort. Equipped with truth and hope, my prayer is that we, the church, would live as those who are unafraid. That we, with church, would compassionately share the words of life with those who wonder if physician-assisted suicide is the answer to pain. That we, the church, would extend grace to those who grope about for answers to deep and probing questions and pointing them to the one who looked upon us in our sin and didn't run away, but rather looked to the cross scorning its shame and in a way entirely con counter to the world said me instead of you oh yeah but jerry you don't know the situation. You don't know it. Yeah, everything has its own situation. Let me share. I didn't. I, was, I don't have this notes. Let me share you my situation. We were pregnant with a baby. Sorry, I have to do this. That, that way I don't cry. His name was Josiah. We were told by the medical establishment, we were, my poor wife had to go through numerous tests. It was crazy. I'll never forget the day they said to us, you know, baby has a spina bifida. We just want you to know that. And of course, the establishment says, maybe you should consider terminating. Wow. And then we get a report, well, that's the wrong read. Sorry, the baby doesn't have spina bifida. The baby actually has Down syndrome. Oh, okay. That's a double whammy. Some of you journeyed through us, through our private hell. <laughs> I know my kids did. I'm not sure they understood. I don't even think we've really talked about it. But I know Sharon was messed up, grieving. And I know what God was saying to me. say to my wife I said I don't care what issue that child has when he comes into this world and if he requires 24-hour care I'm stepping away from the church and my life will be that child to the best of my ability that was my pledge that was my promise And that's what I was determined to do. Unfortunately, we never got to see our baby because he was stillborn. But when he came out, he was healthy. <laughs> that was the principle I stood by life no matter what that's my story do we have our own opinions do we have our own stories yes are they differing sometimes 
diametrically opposed. Yes, I get that. But we need those five essentials in our lives. And we need to know where we stand on issues and how do we compassionately convey the love of Jesus in all of that. So, I leave that with you. Let's pray. God, when we come to you, it's like walking out of darkness into the light. And there are so many things and experiences that damage and spoil our lives every day. There are so many things that prevents us from being the kind of people that you've meant for us to be. And we have wandered, wandered away, but you know, maybe we haven't quite arrived. We've been on this journey, but the goal is not close. We have traveled on the road, but the way ahead is so long. And we have started, but we've not finished. And all you ask of us is to have faith. Just just believe but sometimes God honestly it's hard to believe however we're thankful for the joy of life and for this beautiful world which you've placed on us for all of those in whom you've given to us to share in this journey that we call life those whom have shared precious moments and those whom have been there when we needed them we thank you for laughter I thank you for tears for seeing for listening for thinking and doing uh, for just being alive, God. I thank you for the words and the deeds of those who have changed life for other people, for those who have brought words of hope and for those who, to those who are broken, a message of love for those who are down and for those who have spoken words of forgiveness for those who are wrong and for those whose danger and, and that they can find strength in declaring the good news of Jesus. thank you for our hope God a hope of a life with you and I'm, I am the physical expression of your mercy and grace and I pray that through your strength and not my will but yours that you will make me an instrument of your peace forgive me where I need forgiveness and give me strength where I can't do it on my own convict me of my wrongdoing and guide me on a path of repair and rejuvenation is my prayer so Jesus I'm yours and I I'm not my own, and my life has been brought, bought with a price, so I ask that you'd use me for a purpose and fill me with your spirit and keep me in your will. And I pray today this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. And that is my prayer. I hope you pray for yourself. Amen. And stand with me. So I'm thinking of doing Hacksaw Ridge just because it's on the other end of the spectrum next week. We need a guy flick, you know, after the romantic comedy. Or silence, if you haven't seen that. So just so you know, I, I don't know where I'm going on Sunday. <laughs> so if you want to know, eventually watch Facebook and I'll let you go there. In ancient times, one who blessed, extend his hands for a blessing. Those receiving a blessing did likewise. Go now to make a difference in this perilous and broken world so sanctuary. And my prayer is that you would hold each human life in the same regard as your own. May you bring serenity and peace to the lives of others that God has placed in your hand path. And may God's loving spirit go with you and may he guide you this day and always. Now go and live the church. See you next week.